With a robust economy and low inflation, markets and economics are in a complicated era. WealthVest presents the Weekly Bull and Bear, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial professionals the most up-to-date weekly analysis of the trends and developments occurring in capital markets both here and around the world. Listen in as we analyze these developments and shine a light on the events that matter to us. Good afternoon, everybody. We are launching the first uh podcast of the Wealth Fest, the Weekly Bull and Bear. I've got Tim and Wade on the line. Um, and with that, I'd kind of like to really open up this call with the broad discussion around the faith in the central banks um, and what we're seeing in equity markets. Uh, Tim, I know you were talking a little bit about how, you know, China's slowing down, Europe still maintains, um, you know, low interest rates. I, I'd just like to kind of see your general thoughts on the matter. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I do think we're at a period in, in sort of financial history where the faith in central banks has never been higher. Uh, boy, you really saw it on Friday where we had that disappointing non-farm payroll number uh, and markets recovered. Markets, I'm sorry, it's two Fridays ago, and markets immediately recovered, and we've been basically sideways since then. And we've gotten into this scenario where the equity markets are looking at Bad news is good news. You saw it again today. Uh, we had uh, an empire manufacturing number that had its biggest month-over-month fall ever in, in that. In, in that. And, and then also we, get, uh, we had a, uh, an NAHB, the home builders number, that was also really weak. And we're getting a weak NAHB number despite the fact that the 10-year just went from all the way to from 3-2 coming from last year to 2-1. So you're not seeing the impact of real-world lower rates having much of an impact, and yet we sit here, we're looking at equity markets, and the market is saying, hey, don't worry about it. There's a little bit of soft patch now, but the Fed is going to lower rates. Deutsche Bank has now officially moved our rate forecast from thinking that the Fed would be kind of on hold for this whole year to three cuts. Uh, So we're going to take it all the way down uh, to I think one in five eighths is is our uh, is our target on the overnight lending rate on Fed funds. So, you know, it really is a, a time when, despite the fact that external demand seems really weak, never forget that 45 or so percent of S and P earnings come from outside the United States. But also, it's just external demand that we have you have to have globally. Um, and you're seeing that there's a lack of external demand when you look at China, and China has stimulated like crazy. They're doing anything and everything they, they can do. They're going to lower reserve rates uh, for the banks. By the way, they're going to be lowering reserve rates at a time when credit is getting worse. Never a great idea, in my opinion. Um, Europe is going to be, we're at best 1% growth for this year. We're probably closing in as, as the macro data there declines as well. And then you look at some of the smaller countries that kind of feed into China, uh, where you have South Korea, uh, Taiwan, really, really weak export numbers. Uh, from a bottoms-up basis, if you talk to our uh, guys in research here that, that cover the uh, that cover the big industrials names, they're seeing a meaningful slowdown, and numbers continue to come down. So numbers for the S&P 500, I think were 163 in 2018. Now you had the benefit of the big tax cut, and some of that benefit 
wears off this year. Uh, and now we're looking at maybe 164, 165 with numbers coming down. So you may be looking at an equity market with zero, uh, with zero earnings growth, trading at about 17 times as growth decelerates. But we look at it and say, yeah, it's okay. Fed's coming to the rescue. My point is I just don't know that the Fed has that many bullets. Uh, I don't know that it makes that much of an impact. Um, you know, you look at where the consumer is. As we get sort of later in the cycle, and you look at kind of the bottom half of this country from, a, from an economic point of view, interest rates aren't going to do much for them, right? They're paying rates on car loans, on credit cards, et cetera, that are 8%, 9% credit cards at 15%. Uh, and you can see, despite the fact that we've had a good labor market, um, you can see the fact that interest payments as a percentage of disposable income keep going higher. Now, they're not quite where we were in 2007 and 2008, but it's going that way. So, again, we're late cycle. The Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing. And right now, the equity market, certainly wiser than me at least, is telling you, yeah, this is going to this is going to be okay. We're not going to go into a recession. We're going to engineer a soft landing. All the stimulus that's happening in China, in Europe, in the United States is eventually going to feed its way through, uh, and we're going to, you know, we'll be back on the road to recovery. Which, you know, if, if you've listened to me talk, I don't think is very high in terms of real GDP growth. I, I really think we're in a world now a very low potential GDP. Um, let me just mention one last thing on the inflation front. In defense of the Fed, there's not seeing a lot of inflation. You know, you, you can't make, you know, people say, boy, in my everyday life I see inflation. Auto prices, certainly, you see ATPs going higher. I see inflation. If you're sending kids to college like I am, you certainly see inflation. But on the aspects of the PCE that they measure, you're not seeing a lot of wage growth. Uh, owner's equivalent rent, which kind of tells you where rents are and housing prices are, aren't really putting any pressure on inflation. And health care, uh, which is always a really, really tough one for them to predict, not looking inflationary either. So you can't really blame the Fed on this. But my main point is, again, we are putting a hell of a lot of faith into the Fed but in central banks globally and for, for governments globally with fiscal policy uh, to reflate this global economy. And equity markets seem to have a lot of faith that the Fed can do it. Um, I frankly have less faith uh, because they have less tools to do it at this point. Uh, and I don't think the problem that we're facing right now in either the, U the U.S., Europe, or in Asia is interest rates are too high. Uh, let me go to you, Wade. Well, I, you know, there's so many things I'd like to follow up on what you said, Tim. But, you know, I would say that if you if you think of, you know, some of the stuff that the major economists, whether it's Krugman or Stiglitz or anybody else, have been talking about for the last slightly more than a decade, I mean, they've constantly come back to the refrain of, you know, we're out of bullets, right? And you've mm -hmm. alluded to that, and 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 I want to, I want to kind of make a point about that my my perception is is that if the 10-year treasury is at 2.09 today i i don't know how relevant the fed is to to drop 
25, 50, or 75 basis points because the market's already experiencing, you know, this massive loosening just by the market imposed loosening, right? So there's just it's not like it was tight. I mean, I don't think I don't think at the apex of rates six months ago, I don't think we hit I don't think we hit 3.4. So there's just not a lot of uh, credits not doing a lot and. And that's my, my, my first point. And, you know, my second point is is that I, I really am trying to understand, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that how is it that the equity market seems so disconnected from the bond markets? And how frequently does it happen that the bond markets are making one statement and the equity markets are coming so far behind? Because that's what it appears to me, that the bond market's clearly saying worldwide we got a massive growth problem, uh, and we should be worried. And yet, you know, the equity markets are, are seem like they're playing to a different set of music altogether. Do you have you want to go into that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't agree more, especially when you're talking about the long end too, because. You're at 2-1. People talk about quantitative tightening and quantitative easing. With quantitative easing, you're essentially buying bonds at the long end to depress that price. But again, what difference does it make? And, and you know, we're, we're going through housing cycles uh, that, uh, that clearly, when you look at the NAHB today, and, yeah, you've had some refinance activity, but it hasn't helped selling activity really at all. So I 100% agree uh, that that – that you really are out of bullets, whether you're talking about simple rate cuts or whether you're talking about uh, quantitative efforts. Um, the one area where the equity, uh, where the bonds and the equity markets are on the same page, uh, is in the high yield area. High yield doesn't doesn't seem to shake either. Um, you know, the you can look at the HYG index, and it trades like the equity. So even though you know there is a lot of concern out there on on the levered lo- leverage loan market on all the massive amount of triple B issuance uh, that has occurred, you know, all-time records in triple B issuance. It just strikes me that there's a, still a tremendous amount of liquidity, um, uh, and that is what seems to be keeping the equity markets up. We, you know, when I was out in Bozeman, we talked a little bit about the importance of the buyback bid. Um, you know, we'll buy back somewhere on the order, I think, this year of $800 billion uh, of stock in equity markets, in the U.S. equity markets. That has a big impact. Uh, so I do think that is one of the factors. And, you know, you get into a slower economy. There are where valuations are high. There's less opportunity for M&A. Uh, we, as, another thing we talked about in Bozeman is investors seem to want and corporate CEOs want the buybacks over uh, dividend payout. So I do think that is one of the big things holding markets up. And plus, we have not seen any kind of liquidity crises around the world. Um, you know, look at Greece. Hell, Greece is back under a 4%, uh, a 4% yield. So there is still a hell of a lot of liquidity out there. You know, one area where you might start to see the breakdown um, is if you start to see increasing credit issues. I think generally um, the issue is going to be credit. Uh, that's 
why we have economic cycles, right? Because you get uh, you get ebullience, you get overinvestment, you get malinvestment, and that has to be wrung out. Uh, now, with global central banks as active as they are, uh, and with the global devaluation happening as it is, cycles are longer, and and these areas, uh, and and we've had slower growth, so the cycles just have lasted a lot longer. But um, I think that ultimately it'll be credit. Uh, that will create the disconnect that you're referring to. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, you know, apart from the bond issues we've been talking about that I find very interesting is wage growth or um, what might be construed as lack thereof. Uh, private sector workers, as we saw, had got a 6% hourly um, raise, um, so that was up slightly, but Overall, I mean, we're taking an average out with earnings of only 3.1%. Um, yes, or 6 cents, sorry, is what I should say. Uh, and we're not even looking at inflation. Um, so, Tim, do you think this is, you know, wage growth as normal? Uh, do you think this is slightly less than normal, or um, is this indicative of our, of our current rate environment? Yeah, you know, I would have been somebody who would have told you we'd have more wage growth by now. I, I, I just I, I would have guessed, as most economists would have, and, and people talk about the Phillips curve. It's been around a long time. That as you get to full in, to, as you get to full employment, as you get past Nehru, as they call it, uh, you're going to have some pressure. And why we haven't had more pressure? You know, the old Tom Friedman quote that the world is getting flat, that uh, globalization really is having an impact on wage pressure. There, there's the argument that as older people stay in the workforce much longer, uh, that's creating a lack of, uh, of wage pressure. But this is something that uh, Ph.D. economists are still trying to really get their hands around. Now, one answer for why we're not quite seeing it at this point is we've started slow. Uh, you know, people talk about the ADP as not being a great uh, labor indicator because it doesn't always jibe with what the non-farm payroll say. But it's it's a huge statistical uh, uh, survey, uh, so it does have real relevance, and especially it has relevance when you see it going in the same direction as the household, as the non-farm payroll. Uh, and it was weak. Uh, we got a we got a we got a weak ADP, and we got a really weak non-farm payroll. Uh, so you so you're, you're one of the reasons why at this point we're not seeing that much wage growth is we're actually finally starting to slow down enough. Um, so the opportunity to to get wage growth may have passed us in this cycle. Well, I think that's. I mean, I I I think that that is going to prove to be the d definition of this cycle because we've had no wage growth and all the recovery at the bottom end which we count on in these recoveries to to you know fundamentally positively impact society didn't happen so w what happens to the you know to the bottom 50 percent of wage owner earners if we hit another one without any recovery what do you think about that tim you know, I think you probably see it in the political spect spectrum, and you probably see more populism. I think you really do. You know, um, that's the only way it's going to happen. Look, public companies aren't going to, as long as they can uh, continue to run their businesses without raising prices, raising uh, wages, they're going to they're going to do so. 
what I think you may see as we get towards the 2020 elections is just much more focus from politicians uh, on this very issue. Um, so I, I think that's probably where, where you will start to see uh, more minimum wage laws. And look, one of the reasons why you've had some uh, wage inflation is because of minimum wage laws. And, you know, people can cite various studies saying that minimum wage laws do have a negative impact on jobs, but I think the overwhelming majority of studies show that it really doesn't. Uh, Now, you could go too far with it, but the $15 minimum wage laws where they've done it in the state of Washington and Seattle and so forth, it hasn't depressed, it has not depressed uh, employment. So uh, I do think you'll probably start to see more populist legislation where you do start to see uh, some pressure on, uh, on, on minimum wages going higher. And I, and I guess the last point when we're talking about, you know, employment in general is I'd like to, you know, focus in on some sectors that might be affected with recent turmoil, uh, whether that be tariffs or just the global slowdown. Um, one is apparently the apparel sector, which, you know, last month lost uh, 12,700 jobs um, overall, and, you know, um, when we're looking at China being the source of about 45% of apparel and textile sales, I wonder what other sectors could be uh, affected and um, what other, you know, major markets um, we might we might be looking at. Well, look, you're starting to see, and, and that's a good point. Um, textiles, uh, one of the issues is, is just automation. Uh, you know, you walk into your CVS. When was the last time you went to the counter when you go to CVS or Walgreens? You just you go to your self-checkout and you, you go out. You know, you, you, you go into an Apple store now, uh, and one person can take care of everything and get you in and out of there very quick. You, they, they swipe your card on the remote, and it goes out. So productivity is really growing, so you are not going to have rising employment in the retail sector. One area where you're starting to see job cuts and it's going to be showing up is in the auto sector, though. You know, we've been running a 17-plus SAR uh, that just really isn't sustainable. Uh, So you've seen some job cuts in automotive manufacturing, and I think you'll see more. But the bottom line is, look, globalization has been growing. Global trade has been growing since the end of World War II in in a pretty even straight line. That's changing now. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what sectors are going to be really negatively affected. We don't know where we're going to see perhaps much higher inflation. I do think uh, that we are going to see the second tranche of uh, $300 billion uh, put on. I, I think the Chinese have made it clear at this point that they're not going to be bullied by Trump. I think Trump has made it clear that he believes in mercantilism as economic policy. He believes that the money that is coming to the coffers of the U.S. Treasury are not just an additional consumption tax on U.S. consumers, but being paid somehow by Chinese manufacturers. Um, So that's going to be inflationary. That is going to have an an impact on prices. And Economics 101 will tell you that should have an impact on consumption and so forth, uh, and will have reverberations down the supply chain. So I think it's hard to know where it's going to come from. Uh, I think, you know, there's, but there's two things to blame. When we're talking about retail, we're probably talking about some automation effect, and God knows we're going to see a whole lot of that when we get into automated cars and so on and so forth. But you're also seeing the impacts of trade wars 
um, uh, will have real long-term impacts on supply chains, uh, and that will drive some employment issues and some inflation issues. Well, I'd love to I'd love to talk about the auto comment because I think I think that that analysis I've read a lot of it, and it, you know you, you're talking about uh, in North America. You know, you're talking about the potential for, you know, several hundred thousand jobs lost, high-paying jobs, and, and I've seen estimates as much as a million and a half uh, because you're talking about a 17 million star. Well, there are people who are predicting that, you know, U.S. automakers might be looking at a 12 million yeah. uh as you get into yeah. full automa automated driving and, and people are able to, you know, share the capital costs with other people by not having to own their own vehicles. I mean, it's a, it's a huge cultural shift. It's a um, huge shift. But it's a huge shift. I, you know, I, I, I want to I go back to your point on, on trade and tariffs. And, and over the weekend, I listened to a podcast that was reviewing not just Smoot Holly, but a whole series of trade issues that arose in the 20s that were contributors, obviously, to, you know, the, the Great Depression. And and it was far more than this, than just smooth hauling. And that's what I fear today. I fear that that we have a stock market that is, uh, is lagging and artificially high and it's not digested, you know, the, the, the global trade issues that we're facing. And, you know, I, I fear that the, this, this disruption of supply chains could be really severe. I mean, not a little bit severe, really severe. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, 100%. 100%. I mean, you open your iPhone, you open your, your you know, the hood of your car, um, there are pieces in there from maybe 50 countries. You know, it's not like you can just say, oh, okay, we're just going to start making everything here. Um, you know, the auto companies uh, is a deeply cyclical business. Uh, it's not easy to uh, authorize and start brand new um, investment decisions and, and spending massive amount of CapEx to, to build new plants of something you haven't built in the United States in 50 or 100 years, perhaps. So um, I think it is very very simplistic for people to think, eh, yeah, that's okay. The supply chains will just move. Uh, they'll move to Europe. They'll move to the U.S. They'll move to Latin America, and it'll all work out. I just, I think that's it's 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 awfully naive uh, to think that we can make our way around supply chains that have been put in place um, over the last three, four, five decades. Uh, I think it'll be very, very disruptive, and you won't know how disruptive until it's far too late. There's just not enough pushback on this on, on this president right now, um, uh, at all, um, and he's going to be in office for at least another year and a half. Um, so, and um, somehow or another, uh, somebody's going to have to say, "Look, these, these these tariffs. You know, people don't know what Smoot Hawley is anymore." And for people listening, if you don't know what Smoot Hawley was, it was big um, protectionist mercantilistic policies to protect American industry, and it ended up having a 
a, a very, very negative impact, and it was one of the things that made the Great Depression uh, worse than it needed to be. And those, and, those, and those policies stayed in place for a long time. And I guess kind of to end the call on the last topic I think we should really delve into is, um, of course, what's on many people's mind is uh, Fed policy and what, what is the Fed do we think it's going to do? Um, I mean, in December it was predicted that uh, we might be raising the Fed funds rate, right, yeah. in 2019. And now right. uh, investors now think there might be a seven, uh, 95% chance that by September yeah. uh, Jerome Powell – you know, is going to go the other direction. Uh, so I'm wondering if we have any thoughts on what the trajectory is, at least in, you know, the interim period yeah. of the next six to 12 months. Yeah, our official call here is that the first thing you're going to see is some change to the language in June. They will remove the word patient. Um, and there will be some changes with monitoring and viewing and, you know, all the things that people parse with Fed language. But it should be enough to basically um, jawbone the markets to being fully aware that there will be a cut in July. We think there will be a 25-bip cut in July, a 25-bip cut in September, and one in December. Uh, and that will take us all the way down to one and five-eighths on Fed funds. Um, as I said, I don't think it'll have a real big impact. I don't think there's any suggestion right now that they would return to any kind of quantitative easing or alternative asset purchases or anything. As I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to depress the tenure already at 2-1? What's the point? Um, so, but that's what the Fed is going to do, and I think they're the hope that you see in the equity markets is that with Draghi, you know, what, what can he do? You're already at zero interest rate policies. They're talking about a 10 basis, cut, 10 basis point cut in Europe. And as I said, China has laid out that there is going to be fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and reserve rate cuts for the banks. So there will be global, and, you know, Japan will do what they do. Uh, but in, in the end, in the very long run, um, there's a competitive devaluation go, that going on, and ultimately, I think all of this will be counterproductive, and I think we will end up with higher inflation. But uh, guessing when that's going to come, I'm not the only person who's been making that call, uh, and it's certainly taken longer for a lot of people who have those concerns to transpire, but I do think that's the risk that we're running for the long term. You know, Tim, one of the – you know, one of the uh, – big secular issues that I've read about is, you know, are we really just to be more, are these rates not just a, a function of our current economic softness, but are they really a function of a new reality, that new reality being lower worldwide birth rates, which, yeah. you know, is a massive driver on worldwide GDP uh, or worldwide growth rather and and you know if, if that if birth rates is a driver and worldwide growth is lower you know then why wouldn't interest rates be permanently permanently being uh, an interim time period you know at a at a kind of a, a lower lower level it's like isn't that part of the entire equation do you have any thoughts on that yeah no I think I think that's absolutely fair you know, we have very, very low birth rates and only going lower. 
here in the U.S., uh, certainly the same uh, in Western Europe and, and even, in, even in emerging markets. I mean, I think it's been, uh, I think the, the Thomas Malthus uh, uh, devotees out there have kind of lost the argument because it's become clear that as societies become wealth, wealthier, birth rates go down. That's obviously been the case in the entire developed world, and it's becoming more and more the case even in some emerging markets as they emerge into the global middle class. Uh, I think that is the case for now, but it also means that potential GDP is lower. Uh, so that even so, when you do get to two percent, two and a half percent GDP, it becomes inflationary. So while it does presage and has presaged lower growth and therefore lower threat of inflation in the medium term, I think that it doesn't change the math on what happens in global economic cycles that eventually are ended by malinvestment and poor credit. Well, gentlemen, I think uh, we covered a lot of ground today. I enjoyed the first podcast. Um, for all of you who are listening, we'll be uh, marketing this, and um, we'll be letting you know when the next ones will be subsequently releasing. Great talk. Excellent. You, you guys are the best. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthVest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthVest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthVest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthVest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.